Welcome to Halfway History. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Kylie. And this is a show where we talk about the upcoming week, but a long time ago. And sometimes not so long ago. Yeah. Do we have any updates? Um, not to my knowledge. Okay. Looks like we can get right into it. So, my episode is for the week of July 27th to August 2nd. Happy birthday, Kylie! <laughs> yeah, I'm 28 now. Old lady! Hey! <laughs> <laughs> You're only a few months older than me. Yeah. So, anyways, my topic is for July 31st of 1969, when the entire staff of the Garrick Theater in New York City is arrested. Oh, what? <laughs> Do you have any guesses as to why an entire theater staff would get arrested? In 1969? Yep. Not a freaking clue. <laughs> Does the name Blue Movie give you any hints? No. Was it like a... You know. <laughs> Dancing around the explicit tag there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Blue Movie was called Blue Movie because of the type of film it was made on, which literally gave it a blue-green hue. Oh. It was also one of those movies. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it, there was a double entendre as to why it was called Blue Movie. <laughs> So, well, at least I guessed right on one front. <laughs> yeah. So blue has likely been used for centuries to describe something as coarse, obscene, explicit, or as Kylie was getting to, pornographic. Yep. <laughs> that is the word I was edging around. <laughs> yeah. <Whoa>. <laughs> <laughs> and it normally uh, refers to tone, language, or imagery. It's kind of just anything that is any of those things can be referred to as blue. Brief aside... Even though we know that blue has meant this for hundreds of years, there isn't a very solid reason as to why language evolved in this way. Most old references of someone using blue to mean these things are used once and then never again for years. Huh. So I'm not entirely sure how the current phrasing of blue actually caught on. <laughs> yeah, that is kind of odd. So, for example, we think that it could be from blue books, which were low-quality printed books with blue covers that were cheap and generally read by the lower class. But there were just as many blue blue books as there were blue books with less lewd or obscene stories. So in 1824, the Scottish Galavidian Encyclopedia lists a phrase at, called thread of blue to mean a smutty touch of anything to a piece of media such as a song or writing which seems pretty close to the current meaning of blue mm -hmm. but there aren't any records that support the notion that our etymology actually derived from this phrase it's huh. just one of the earlier phrases huh. yeah and there were even some way earlier than that that kind of hinted at it like i saw one uh where someone was calling someone brimstone blue in result to sinning so oh, interesting and that was from a long, long time ago, but there never had ever been any references to brimstone and blue huh. in any records that we know of. Yeah, that is that is an odd pairing. Like I I mean, like it makes sense, especially if you're if you're thinking about like like lust as a sin, because like brimstone is very frequently associated with like hell and yeah. the devil and everything. But why so, like, blue? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, so and it shows up a bunch. Like people also have, you know, like we have blue laws. 
Yep. And the theory is, is that blue laws were printed on blue paper or dealt with blue subjects, and neither of those things are entirely true. Hmm. Um, blue laws dealt with, the, or I guess not entirely true, but the the blue laws were a New England thing mm-hmm. that regulated what you could do on Sundays because yeah. there were certain things that were considered too obscene to be done on a Sunday. So, <laughs> it, so blue and obscenity connect there as well. Yeah. But it's, again, no one's really sure why blue keeps getting connected to obscene in throughout history. It, it, it's odd that there's yeah. not a solid grounding for it. There was even some stuff that I was reading where it was going back to some French phrases oh. um, that sound like blue or that and completely doing a 180. Apparently, there is some old phrase that sounds like blue that is referring to like Mary's blue dress, like Mary Jesus, like, oh, and stuff like that. Okay. Um, huh. And then also there was something I saw about blue being kind of like a mispronunciation of Deu for God and... It, it it got really convoluted as to like how many times blue has meant or not meant obscene throughout <laughs> history and how it's been like even if it doesn't mean it it's still kind of like hints to the fact that it meant it yeah that is that is weird yeah so we don't normally find words like this i don't think where that... their etymology is just so clouded yeah i i feel like it's probably fairly uncommon yeah well anyways um, back to blue movie. So it was blue both for the blue tint of the film quality and because the co- content of the movie was quote unquote blue. <laughs> and the movie didn't just contain profanity. It was profanity. <laughs> the plot of the film revolved around two actors, Viva, also known as Janet Hoffman, and Lewis Walton, who were both playing themselves in a feature length film that was completely unscripted sex. Oh, <laughs> And that's it. That's what that's it was. That's just what it was? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yep. So, interestingly enough, there actually wasn't all that much sex in the movie due to the nature of it being unscripted. Oh. So, they were kind of directed to have sex in front of the camera, and then they were going to film for a certain amount of time, and that was whatever whatever happened was what they were going to film. Interesting. Yep. Very huh. strange. Yeah. So most of the movie was spent with the couple laying naked on the bed in a typical New York apartment during a normal weekend afternoon. After finishing having sex, they talk about politics, the Vietnam War, mundanity, everyday life, just stuff in general. It's just huh. a movie of two people talking, mostly after sex. Huh. Interesting. <laughs> yep. That's such a weird premise for like a feature length film. Yeah, so because of the Vietnam War conversation, that's actually how they ended up billing the movie to the press and oh, to no. get it into theaters is they they pitched it as a movie about the Vietnam War and everything we can do about it. This movie is about love, not destruction. It's a little misleading. <laughs> a l- maybe. Uh, maybe maybe it's not. Maybe part of uh, what they're getting about there is that there's not really much you can do about the war. Yeah, that's... I mean, yeah. But that's, uh, you know, a whole different conversation about, like, you know, 
just diving into the psychology of this movie. Yeah. <laughs> and I think once you hear who the director is, it'll make a little bit more sense because it made sense to me and I don't know their work very well, but it was Andy Warhol. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't even know he created movies. I didn't either. Yeah. But it, now it all makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I just knew him as the Campbell Soup Can guy. Like that's, <laughs> uh, I like art, but I was never into like that kind of art. And therefore, I am probably very naive on Warhol's works, other than just the few really popular ones yeah, that you see. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much all I've ever encountered, too. Okay, like, so at least I'm not alone in this conversation. No, yeah, no. We can both be half-wits on this one. Yeah, <laughs> I am not an art expert by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, so uh, wanting it to be a Vietnam protest movie wasn't entirely consistent with the message that Warhol was giving out either. So previously, Warhol had made other movies, such as Eat, which was just one person eating. Jeez. <laughs> he made... So, Vor. <laughs> yeah. Uh, wow. Okay. <laughs> hey, you're the one who made your topic a porno. It's so. true. <laughs> the, he also made a movie called Sleep that was literally eight hours of watching someone sleeping. Why would you watch that? Like, that's just so weird. We have to remember, he's not making movies, he's making art. No, oh, that's true, yeah. But still, it's <laughs> it's weird. And he had a few other on-the-nose movie titles as well, which made me wonder why this movie was called Blue Movie. Which, it does like seem a little bit on-the-nose, but his other movies were Eat and Sleep, <laughs> and uh, I'll get into them later, but like Flesh, Trash. Oh, no. Like, just, they were all like one word that had to do with what the topic was so have huh. it kind of stood out to me as weird that his movie was called blue movie when everything else was just singular word for the most part yeah but it's kind of odd turns out that was not the original name oh what was it sex um it's in certain expletives starting with f <laughs> oh <laughs> so i was very close <laughs> yeah uh and as it turns out warhol's original message was that he always wanted to just make a movie that was just about sex so in 1968 he just got two actors together got a cameraman and got a friend's apartment and just shot it now i'm i'm wondering what kind of contract was like drawn up for these actors well it's it's interesting because in the movie they're credited as playing themselves yeah so it it so it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, I didn't look into that, but it is interesting that this happened just in general. Yeah. So, I think a lot of people would have found this movie pretty boring, <laughs> but it provided Warhol with a great setup for what he described as one of his favorite methods of storytelling or film, which is just people talking. Mm -hmm. In his in a book, Warhol, a biography by Victor Brockus, the author cited a quote from Warhol as follows. So this whole thing is a quote. Scripts bore me. It's much more exciting not to know what's going to happen. I don't think that plot is important. If you see a movie of two people talking, you can watch it over and over again without getting bored. You get involved, you miss some things, you come back to it. But you can't see the same movie over and over again if it has a plot because you already know the ending. In conversation, everyone is rich, everyone is in interesting. Years ago, people used to sit looking out of their windows at the street or on a park bench. 
They would stay there for hours without being bored, although nothing much was going on. It's his favorite theme in any in movie making, I mentioned. Um, just watching something happen for two hours or so. I still think it's nice to care about people, and Hollywood movies are uncaring. We, we are pop people. We took a tour of Universal Studios in Los Angeles, and inside and outside the place, it was very difficult to tell what was real. They're not real people trying to say something, and we're real people not trying to say anything. Hmm. I just like everybody and believe in everything. So that that, right. that was his feeling towards movie making in general, which I I can totally see through the types of movies he made, where yeah. it was just it's not about something, but you can, but you can just kind of watch it, and like I kind of appreciate the sentiment there because personally, you know, I don't like rewatching things. No, you hate it, and it drives me crazy because like I want to rewatch everything. Yeah, so like once. I completely agree with his sentiment here that like once you know the end, the movie's no longer exciting. That's so weird. Yeah, I it's weird. I, I completely agree with that. I don't find movies exciting anymore once you know the ending. I think the the excitement is in the journey and learning the ending. Huh. Uh, I mean, to each their own, I guess. I I personally don't agree. I know. But I I just found it weird that I agreed with this. Yeah. <laughs> And I, I guess probably also something that Warhol would have agreed with maybe is like, I don't not rewatch things either. Like, you mm-hmm. know, I've re- I've shown you things that I've watched before, but like when I rewatch things with people for the purpose of introducing them to that media, I like seeing what they think about it. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like I'm not necessarily rewatching the media. I'm rewatching the person mm. or I'm watching a new person watch the media. And by that, you mean you're watching me color while I watch. And now you understand why I get so frustrated <laughs> that you can't pay attention to movies. I don't know what it is. Like if all I'm doing is sitting and watching a movie, I feel like I have to be doing something else. We are a very bad pair in this yeah, respect. Yeah, I don't know why. It's it's weird. But I don't have any problem in like the movie theater. Yeah. I don't I don't know what it is about being at home and like trying to watch something and feeling like I have to be doing something else too. Drives me insane. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. It's okay. Like I mentioned about there being missed messages on the film, the actress Viva mentions that she believes that the movie, much like Warhol's other media, was actually about sexual frustration and the disappointment that nine-tenths of the world has, but doesn't actually see. Huh. All right. So that was that was kind of interesting. That, that wasn't like a, a quote from Warhol, but it was someone who observed Warhol, which I think is kind of, uh, you know, cyclical yeah, in yeah. nature a little bit. So observing him someone else that worked with him was like he feels that nine tenths of the world is disappointed but doesn't want to see it mm-hmm. and that's what i get from being a part of and watching his creations yeah it's interesting yeah i also don't necessarily disagree with that either i think a lot of us are disinterested or disappointed with the world in many respects i yeah i I feel like that's probably accurate. Yeah. Maybe not to the point that they were trying to get to in here, but, <laughs> you know, in, in some respect, I, th- I think we all are a little disappointed. Yeah. So this also turns out to be kind of true about Warhol's personality in general. Again, I don't know too much about the guy, so I learned a lot when looking into this. <laughs> and for a guy who made a mu- movie purely about sex and another one that was just one person's face as they received sexual pleasure. Oh, boy. And another movie that could 
probably be accurately described as a much more graphic version of Brokeback Mountain. Oh, no. <laughs> and, uh, apparently, the guy had no interest in experiencing sex himself. Huh. Uh, there was one article that I saw that said um, he, f- he felt that the most fun part of sex was not doing it. So, like, he had this, he had this, like, fascination with sex. Right. But had no interest in taking part of it himself. But I also saw articles that, like, some of his close friends said that that was just kind of bull and, like, huh, it was just, yeah. like, a persona that he put on as an artist. But I could, I could see that, that too. Yeah. Uh, probably just to connect more with the stuff he was making, he adopted that public persona. But yeah, he also maybe. could have just been not interested. Yeah. Or have had very, like, specific tastes or something. Yeah. Which, in general, this, again, comes out even weirder or ironic because I found an article on Dazed Digital called How Andy Warhol Brought Sex to the Silver Screen. All right. So, for someone who (laughs) wasn't enjoying it himself, he seems to have been recognized as the father of, like, sex in movies. Huh. Well, you know, <laughs> what are you chuckling about? You know the old uh, homily: if you can't do, teach. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, in in this article that I read, and as I saw in many other articles, Warhol was generally accredited with bringing sex back into American media in general, and he was kind of known as creating porno chic which is kind of <laughs> common in, like, the 60s and 70s. Uh-huh. Um, and he also is credited with ushering in the golden age of porn and how America felt about porn and sex as art. Huh. So right. it was, like, the idea... And it was the idea that porn, not just nudity, could have artistic value. Because nudity is kind of common in the art world. But, like, right. actively engaging with nude yeah was seen as crass right which is kind of an interesting thing to think about that you know we respect nudity but not the actions we do when naked yeah that is kind of that's an interesting like comparison because like that is one of those things that like a like a new drawing or whatever is like considered like pretty like good art yeah i mean obviously or like high art like yeah (laughs) but yeah a lot of high art is done nude yeah but like like a porno or whatever is like considered just base and right yeah exactly it's it's interesting how that act of like doing something while nude lends itself to like degrading the art almost right so yeah. I think we'll learn that Warhol was fairly progressive, or even if he wasn't, he put on, he, he created a lot of representation in progressive mm-hmm. things, and it seems that his art impacted more than just the art world, but also society in general. Yeah. Because Warhol surrounded himself with a, quote, circle of muses or a collective of beautiful misfits. Uh-huh. Because he set the stage for representation of queer, trans, and drag in the media. Oh. Because that's who he surrounded himself with when he was doing all of these different sexual projects. 
All right. And uh, the circle of friends and muses and misfits included Jackie Curtis, Candy Darling, and Holly Woodland. The latter was even part of a petition to get her nominated for the Best Actress role for the Academy Awards for her role in Warhol's, Warhol's movie Trash. Oh. The petition was started by George Cukor, who directed movies like My Fair Lady, Gone with the Wind, and Little Women, among many others. Oh, all right. So it's the the fact that a trans person got this much visibility from someone so ingrained in the media yeah, back in the 60s. That's cool. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um I would say that Warhol's studio was kind of a progressive bastion in some respects that probably rivals even media corporations today. Yeah. To to bring that much representation to the forefront. Yeah. I And as far as I could tell, all of these people and many more, obviously, considered Warhol a a friend and they all worked in his (laughs) studio, which was called The Factory. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And they it it just seems real, really interesting. That's Um, cool. I also saw an anecdote that kind of on the sad side, but um, Warhol's representation of queer and trans folks is part of what led to the Stonewall riots. Because there was no visibility on that culture. Yeah. Until he started very publicly portraying them in, you know, normal media cinema. Right. Um, so I don't, I don't know exactly how much of that can be attributed to the rise in awareness. But with the awareness also came violence from people who weren't right. accepting of it. Yeah. Yep. So just kind of an interesting tidbit there that uh, that was probably one of the starts of real trans representation and queer representation. That's really cool. Yeah. I did not know that Warhol was involved in like that kind of thing. Honestly, all That's of, really cool. Uh, it might have just been because I was looking at Blue Movie, but nearly all of the pictures that I saw of Warhol with other people, I started recognizing them all as the different like trans and queer people and drag queens that were being brought up in all of the all, all of the articles I was huh. reading and it was like okay this wasn't just like a stunt like the, these were his people that's really neat yeah it, it's definitely interesting at least yeah and I don't know enough about Warhol to say yeah. that he's like a good person I know next to nothing about yeah, him same. I... so like he could have some very problematic things as well but at the very least it seems like he was a very sex positive, LGBT positive person that did a lot for early representation. Yeah. And I mean, every every little push matters. So Yeah. So I can't help but think from my limited knowledge of Warhol that he probably wouldn't be happy with the porn industry today. Probably not if, if that was like his basis of, yeah. Yeah. So given that a lot of his work was made in protest of how these workers were treated and in general, just the seedy underbelly of Hollywood, it it seems like we've fallen more into that trap than out of it. Yeah. Especially with like the Weinstein stuff. Mm-hmm. Weinstein, Epstein. Oh, yeah. yeah. All sorts of um, shady, shady things. Yeah. So, for example, he had made a movie called Couch, where he flipped the narrative about the well-known and often blind eye of Hollywood's casting couches, like kind of like what I was talking about with Weinstein, where Mm -hmm. you would audition for a role and part of the audition would be 
going into a room with a couch to talk with the acting director or any of that and yeah uh, you know sexual favors would be traded there yeah that were completely unrelated to your quality as an actor yeah so he made the movie couch where it was very clear that there was a consensual orgy happening on a typical casting couch wow so (laughs) and it was just kind of to like fly in the face of like this is this is very obviously consensual, but what normally happens in these rooms a lot of the is time not. It's not. Yeah. Yeah. And That's would be non consensual or rape. Yeah. <laughs> so Wow. Yeah. I did not I I only knew Warhol because of the Campbell soup. Yep. Like you said. <laughs> I, I got a lot more than I bargained for when I picked this topic. Wow, I'm and gonna al- have to look into him a little bit more. Yeah, and also a lot less, because if you haven't noticed, we haven't really talked about Blue Movie. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> So I I do know that this wasn't a whole lot about Blue Movie, but I hope it was interesting nonetheless. And kind of a side note is I almost didn't get to write this topic because when I first came across the event when I was doing research, it was just called Blue Movie Removed from Censorship. And like I typed it in and I came across Blue Movie. And then as I was researching and writing all of this, I had the horrifying realization that the event date that I was talking about was for a movie in Norway called Blue Movie. (laughs) And it was not the same Blue Movie. So I frantically started scrambling through all of the articles that I found looking for a date that fit in this week. Oh my gosh. (laughs) The history gods must be looking down on me because the theater in New York getting arrested for playing Blue Movie happened in the same week. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Yep. Well, anyways, that was my topic. Nice. So, call to action. Yes. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Halfwit History. You can go to our website at www.halfwit-history.com, and you can send us an email at halfwitpod at gmail.com. Yeah, if you have any um, topic suggestions or comments, um, feedback, we would absolutely love to hear from you. Absolutely. Uh, And thank you to the Fishermen for the use of our theme song, Another Day. You can find a link to their SoundCloud down in our show notes. Go check them out. Fun facts. Fun facts. You go first. Okay. All right. Okay. So my fun fact takes place on July 28th, 1858. And it's the first use of fingerprints as a means of identification um, and it's made by Sir William James Herschel of the Indian Civil Service. Neat. With all that forensic files yeah, I've been watching. I was just about to go right there. <laughs> Kylie's been binging forensic files. And what was the other one? All- Unsolved Mysteries. Unsolved Mysteries. I've been watching the I'll Be Gone in the Dark. dark the I'll Be Gone in the Dark. In the Dark. <laughs> in the Dark. I'll Be Gone in the Dark documentary on HBO that um, chronicles uh, Michelle McNamara's, like, deep dive to find the golden skate golden skate golden state killer um and like all of the stuff that went into the book and like i legitimately cried my way through the like final three episodes of that it was so good though kylie loves her true crime i do okay my fun fact so my fun fact is on july 27th because it's on kylie's birthday and it is from 1982, where Alan Menken picked it because of Kylie's love for 
<laughs> musicals. And Howard Ashman's musical, Little Shop of Horrors, opens off-Broadway at the Orpheum Theater in New York City. Nice! I actually have never seen Little Shop of Horrors. So. Weird, considering how every time you're hungry, I just hear, feed me, Seymour! I know, but that's that's because that's like the only quote I know from it. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyways, that's been our show. As always, I've been your halfwit. And I'm your historian. And we hope you listen next week. Bye! Since you've gone, then